All right, well, let's go ahead and let's pray one more time, and then we'll spend some time in, in the text this morning. So let's go ahead and let's uh, pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your Son, Jesus Christ, who's come and died on the cross for our sins, who was buried and rose again on the third day. We thank you for just this opportunity we have to spend in your word, to think about the truth that's found in your word. And uh, we ask that your spirit would be moving in our hearts and revealing uh, secret sin, helping us learn the truth that's found here. Help us grasp these really perplexing and difficult uh, subjects that we're going to deal with this morning. Be with me, give me clarity of speech and clarity of mind that your church may be edified and that they may seek to honor and glorify you. We thank you for everything you've blessed us with in your son's name. Amen. So, there are many things in this world that perplex me, baffle me, have me confused. And I, I often have thought of some of these things, like, what is the ethical ramification of a vegetarian eating an animal cracker? Or, or this one, uh, why do you drive on a parkway but park in a driveway? Or what about this one, why does shipments go over land but cargo goes over the sea? Those have often perplexed me and caused me to think, no, I'm, I'm joking. There are things in this world, though, that are very perplexing, very confusing, and oftentimes as you read them, you're, you're left with the sense of tension on the inside of saying, I know this is a reality. I know it's true. I see it's true. I just don't know how it is true. I don't know how these things work together. I, I know that the puzzle pieces all fit. I just don't see how they fit together. This morning, we're going to be discussing some very perplexing things, but specifically the life of a righteous person, the perplexity of what goes into a righteous person's life. And remember, we're in the middle of the section of Proverbs 16 that's dealing with the sovereignty of God, that God is in control. So we're dealing with this complexity of our lives, of us making decisions, making plans, doing things. And then on the other hand, God is sovereign and in control. And this is rather perplexing to all of us. And so we're going to kind of dive in this morning and look at some of these perplexities. In fact, sometimes when we see some of these things work themselves out in life, we are so baffled, and I'm so baffled, that the only thing I can say at the end of it is, well, praise the Lord, because I have no explanation or no real answer of what just happened other than I know it's true because God's word says it, and that's about as far as it goes. So, this morning, in Proverbs 16, we're going to be in verses 7 through 9. I want to talk about the perplexity of the righteous life. Verse 7, we're going to look at the perplexing nature of the lifestyle or the path of the righteous. So, in verse 7, it's the perplexing path. In verse 8, we're going to see this perplexing purpose, and in verse 9, we're going to see the perplexing 
planning. But let's look at this perplexing path in verse 7. So Proverbs 16, verse 7. Notice what Solomon says here. He says, When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Now, a couple things that I, I need to always remind myself when I read the book of Proverbs, and I think it's important for you to have in your mind as well, is this. Remember that Proverbs here is giving us a principle. This is not a promise, meaning if you have a lot of enemies in your life, if you just start walking with the Lord, there then all of a sudden becomes this invisible force field of protection and you no longer have enemies. That's not what this verse is teaching. This verse is teaching the principle that you should live for the Lord and all things being equal, nine times out of ten, this is what you will normally see happen. This is not a promise. It's not a condition statement. You do this, then this happens. It's a principle saying normally this happens. So let's just, let's just break this part a little bit. It says, when a man's ways are pleasing, and we have to ask the question, what does he mean by a man's ways here? What does he mean by the pathway or the roadway, man's roadway? Well, as we've seen in the book of Proverbs up to this point, Every time that the word way is used, every time that the word road is used, it refers to a a person's lifestyle, right? It refers to the decisions they make, the way they're walking, the, the type of principles that they use as they're walking. So it's referring to the totality of their life, their lifestyle, the way that they're making decisions. So think of this. When a man's ways are pleasing, meaning it's favorable, but notice who it's favorable to. It's favorable towards the Lord. So when a man's ways, when his lifestyle is pleasing to the Lord. Now, just as a simple thing, I think we all know this. When, when When we're living our lives and we're living it according to the scriptures, our primary focus should be to be pleasing to the Lord. It's easy to try to make our lifestyle pleasing to man as well. Okay, And there are definitely some beautiful things about living righteously. If you think about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control, those things are all good things that, that you would want in a neighbor. And so there's some sense in which that is pleasing to your neighbor. But notice here that the person, their path is specifically pleasing to the Lord Because I think that's what the person wants. The person wants their pathway to be pleasing to the Lord. They want, at the end of the day, for the Lord to say, well done. You did did a good job. God is pleased with the things that are are done. So these ways are pleasing. I guess the question then would say, well, what does this look like? Because this is Proverbs, and this is a kind of a portrait of a wise person or a righteous person. So what, what does this look like when a person's life... And their lifestyle is pleasing to the Lord. What, what kind of things should we expect to see there? Well, the scriptures, and specifically the New Testament, have a lot to say. I would say this, first of all, that this is something that is learned. We learn how to be pleasing to the Lord. I really wish that when we came to know the Lord, we instantly got the download of all things that are pleasing to the Lord and all of our bad, sinful habits and lifestyles and attitudes were all just washed away and we're now this incredibly righteous person and do nothing wrong from that point on from the moment we place our faith in Christ. I wish, I wish that was the case. Unfortunately, that's not the case. 
we're, we, uh, when we're born again, obviously we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We're a new creature with new desires, new capabilities, but we still have that, what Paul calls the flesh, that, that sinful element that pushes us towards evil. So we have this war going on inside of us between the spirit, which wants us to do what God wants us to do, and the flesh, which wants us to do what is, what is evil. And in the midst of this struggle between the spirit and the flesh and yielding to the power of the spirit and, and spending time in God's word and learning, we have to learn how to be pleasing to the Lord. The Bible teaches us, and as we continue on in our life, we still have to continue to learn how to be pleasing. That's the one thing that I I thought when I graduated Bible school, I thought, well, I have it made in the shade. I finished Bible school. I know all this stuff. Well, I know a lot of stuff. I thought I knew all the stuff, but I didn't know all the stuff. And then, as the Lord does, as I spent time in his word, spent time living, I realized how little I know and how much more I need to learn about what is it, what's pleasing to him, right? And, and we are constantly failing and constantly needing to learn and be taught by God's word and by the scriptures on what is pleasing to him. That's what he does. That's, that's what he does. He's continually teaching us, and we ourselves are continually reforming, becoming more and more like Christ. We also see <clears throat> in this life of, that's pleasing to the Lord in the New Testament, I'm reminded of that passage in 2 Timothy where Paul says when, when somebody is, uh, becomes a soldier, they don't invest time in civilian affairs. They're, they're only concerned with the one who sent them in order to please the one that sent them. And so there's a sense in pleasing the Lord that there is going to be sacrifice and giving up of certain things to be pleasing to the Lord. We also know that the Lord is working in us and changing our heart and teaching us and making us more like Jesus so that we want to be more and more pleasing in our life. But the author of Hebrews says some really interesting things, and I just want to point us to Hebrews just quickly here when we think about pleasing God. What does it look like when somebody's pleasing God? And let's just go to Hebrews 11. Let's start here. Hebrews 11. And just notice, zero in on verse 6 for a moment, and just notice what, what the author says here in Hebrews eleven six. He says, And without faith... It is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. So just think of this. Notice that as the author is talking about being pleasing to God, it is impossible to please God if you are not living a life that is continually trusting in him. Right? So when I'm learning, when I'm learning this life of being pleasing to the Lord, I'm learning how to be, trust him more, how to be more faithful to him, how, how, how to, to lean on him more. And it's impossible to be pleasing to him if you are not, if you don't have faith and are not believing in him. The author of Hebrews also says something else very interesting in chapter 13. Notice in verse 16, he says, And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for such sacrifices God is pleased 
So notice here that there's this idea of sacrifice that's involved and doing what's good, and this is what's pleasing to God. As I'm thinking about it, uh, yeah, let's do it. Uh, Let's go to Colossians. And if we're going to blame anybody, you can blame me. If the, if the roast gets burnt, just say, well, pastor had to go to Colossians 1 to talk about how we had to lead a life that's pleasing to the Lord. Colossians 1, notice in verse 10. I think Paul really nicely sums this up as well. By the way, this is, this is Paul's prayer for the church in Colossae. The church in Colossae is, is, is a, at the time of the writing, was very troubled. And they were troubled with a, with a heresy where they were causing the people not to value Christ. Christ was being devalued. And there was a lot of things that they started adding in to their idea of Christ. And so Paul, he wrote this book to combat that heresy that was in Colossae. And as he's writing this introduction, this is really his prayer for that church. And this, this first part of Colossians, if you're ever stuck on how to pray for somebody, this is a fantastic passage to kind of teach you some of the things that we should be praying for each other about. But just notice, notice the conclusion here in verse 10. He says, So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects. So Paul's desire is for the church of Colossae to walk in a way that is worthy of the Lord, worthy of the calling, and to be pleasing to the Lord. Now, as I've discussed before, and I think it's important, when we think of the concept of grace, this idea of unmerited favor, you understand that God looks at us all with grace, and he sees us, and he looks at us through that lens, and we are pleasing to him, not on the basis of what we do, but on the basis of who he is, on the basis of his decision. As a believer, as his child, yes, I am the object of God's grace, but there is this expectation that he has of me to be obedient. And when I'm obedient as a child, God is also pleased. Okay, So there is that grace of unmerited favor. What we're talking about here is the lifestyle of a believer that's obedient, that makes God happy. That, that God says, that's exactly what I expect of you, okay? So, so that's what he's talking about. Walking in a way that's worthy of the Lord, that pleases him. And notice that this is in all areas. All areas of one's life should be pleasing to the Lord. And, and what does that look like, Paul? He says, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of... Uh, attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That's what it looks like to lead a life that's pleasing to the Lord, one that is bearing good fruit, that's having good works, one that is increasing in their knowledge of God, they're learning about God more and more, one who is strengthened by God and is continually steadfast in the faith, who is patient, who is joyous, giving thanks. That is what it looks like. That's a snapshot of someone who is pleasing to the Lord. So if we go back to Proverbs, Proverbs 16, 7. 
So it says, when a man's lifestyle is pleasing to the Lord, what we just saw, notice this next tag. It says, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Now, there is a little bit of a debate here in the second part of verse 7, and the debate is over the pronoun. He, his, and him. The question is, the first he, who's the he? Is it the man or is it God? Then when you get to the his enemies, whose enemy is that? Is that God's enemy or is that man's enemy? And then when it says peace with him, once again, who's he talking about? Is he talking about that the enemies will be at peace with the man or at peace with God? Now, as we get to difficult texts like this, because I believe that both interpretations actually kind of do make sense to the, to the context, we have to be very observant, and sometimes we have to say, this is a really difficult thing, and this is what I think from the, the flow of the text, of what the author's trying to communicate in the context. And it would seem that the first he would refer to God, right? This section from verses 1, well, Basically, the whole chapter of 16 deals with the sovereignty of God and what God does. And it's talking about and wrestling with human responsibility and the freedom of man with God's sovereignty, right? So man's responsibility and his choices and God's sovereignty. So in dealing with that, it would make sense that verse 7, the first part would be dealing with man and his responsibility and then the God's sovereign act in the second part of the verse. When it says his enemies, that gets a little dicey because in one sense, if a person is pleasing with the Lord and identified with the Lord, isn't the enemy of that person ultimately the enemy of the Lord? So there, that's a little difficult to parse out. So we'll just say enemies for there. And then pleasing will be at peace with him. This seems to be speaking of the man himself. So it seems that if when a man's way is pleasing to the Lord, the principle is that he makes even enemies to be at peace with the man, that this is one of the things that God sovereignly does. And this is perplexing. This is rather perplexing to me that God would so work through the life of his saints in such a way that as they are trying to be obedient to the Lord and honor and glorify God, that God is working in the hearts of other people around them and, and through their actions and through their example and through their testimony, people's hearts are being softened. I do think this last part of verse eight or seven is interesting because you have the phrase enemy and peace. These are very warlike terms. So you get the sense of an extreme enemy. I and others have used this verse in in marriage counseling um, because I think it's a good verse. It's a good principle. And I think the principle sound that if you're having problems with somebody in a relationship, that really the first thing you should do is get right with the Lord. And when you're right with the Lord and walking with the Lord, all of those characteristics and attitudes and attributes that are needed to repair the relationship and help make the relationship stronger are there because you're doing what the Lord's asking you to do. And I think this is a good principle here. Although it does seem like the language is a little bit stronger than just talking about repairing relationships. This, this seems like using the word enemy 
it seems like somebody who's coming after someone to persecute them, to hurt them, that, that they're specifically trying to silence the voice of the one who is pleasing with the Lord. And that it's ultimately the Lord, not the person, it's ultimately the Lord that brings that reconciliation, that causes that peace between these two enemies. This is, this is also mind-boggling to us and perplexing because normally if somebody's my enemy, my first response is I must defend myself and stop them, right? Retribution, vengeance, that's the response, right? That's the response we like to have. But that's not what the Proverbs is telling us. The Proverbs is saying, you worry about being pleasing to the Lord, I will take care of the other part. I think a great example of this is found in Acts chapter 9, where you have the Apostle Paul, who at that time was Saul, was out and he was the main principal witness against Stephen. And Stephen was, you know, one of the first Christian martyrs uh, stoned to death. And Paul, or Saul, as he was still breathing threats against the church, as he's walking and, and he's, he's going to another city to persecute other Christians, what happens? The Lord intervenes in his life. Intervenes in his life to the point that he becomes a follower of Jesus, not only just a follower of Jesus, but one of the principal authors of the New Testament. So when you think about this principle, when, when someone's ways are pleasing to the Lord, the Lord can work in the heart of enemies, of those who are persecutors, in a way that is far better than you and I could ever imagine. So our responsibility is to worry about our own life and be pleasing to the Lord. He will change the heart of the other. He is better at it. Let him do it. He can change the hearts of men, and he does. And he normally does it in ways that are far more spectacular than you could ever imagine. He does it in a way that brings him glory and him honor. It's easy for us to say, I'm filled with rage. I'm now going to seek vengeance. That is not the point of this verse. So, it's a little perplexing, isn't it? Now, there's something else that's perplexing. Notice verse 8. It says, better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. Now, this is a restatement of something that we've seen numerous times in the book of Proverbs, so I'm not going to really spend a lot of time on it. But I do, I do want you to notice in verse 8 what is being compared. What's being compared is not poverty and income. What's being compared is righteousness and wickedness. And it's saying that righteousness is better even if you have little resources. It is always better to be righteous than it is to be wicked and have income. Do not think that what's being compared here is righteousness and great income. Right? That's not what's being compared. It's righteousness and wickedness. This passage is not saying the ethical ramifications of being poor or the ethical ramifications of being rich. Rather, you, who you are. Are you one that is seeking the Lord, doing what is right, seeking to know the Lord? That is better. So if you have to choose between one or the other, 
You should choose every time righteousness because it's better. Now, there's nothing wrong with righteousness and riches. In fact, the book of Ecclesiastes, we're going to be studying the book of Ecclesiastes tonight, says that there's actually incredibly great advantage to a righteous, wise, rich guy. That's the best place you could be. That's a good thing. But here we're talking about the purpose, right? The righteous person purposes to be righteous regardless of what he has. That's the point of the righteous person. The person is not trying to be righteous so that he could also be wise and then also wealthy. He's being righteous because that's what's pleasing to the Lord and that's what's right. Now the other, that's a great, that's a great temptation, isn't it? That with great, in, uh, it's, it, it's, not, it's not a good thing to have great income with injustice. The word here for injustice has the idea of perjury, has the idea of bribery, has the idea of bending and breaking the laws. And there is a pull, isn't there? Doesn't even the Apostle Paul tell us that there's a pull, uh, a pull into temptation with riches? And, and there's, there's this pull that will lead you into all sorts of other things. Rich, having a lot of money is not the problem. The money is the motivation and the purpose of why you're doing what you're doing. And the purpose here that the righteous person has is righteousness. Doing what is right and what is pleasing to the Lord. Even if that means he's going to end up poorer and having only food and, and something over his head. That is better than having financial security. And, what, and righteousness should be pursued first. But we've already dealt with this, and so if you wanted to listen to this more, there's other passages in the book of Proverbs, and you can listen to that on, on our website. But let's go to verse 9, because verse 9 is probably the most perplexing verse here. It says, the mind of man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. I love this verse. This verse has been so very helpful to me. It is confusing and perplexing and baffling, but so helpful, right? (laughs) I love how Solomon puts this. So the mind, literally the word here for mind is the word heart, but uh, we shouldn't really get all hung up on whether it should be heart or mind translated here. They're kind of the same thing. So the, the mind or the heart of a man plans his ways. This means that this is a reality, right? Humans, we plan. A couple weeks ago, we talked about how humans have a real will. We don't necessarily have a free will, but we have a real will. We make real decisions. We have reasonable self-determination. This is what we do. And in fact, I even think here, if we were talking about the types of plans that a righteous person should have, these are plans that are biblical. These are plans that are seeking to honor and glorify God. They're wise. They're using, they're using intelligence and discernment. I think this is kind of the stuff that God wants us. He wants us to be responsible with what he's given us. He wants us to be good stewards, and he wants us to plan that way. And that's good. It's good to do that. And we should plan our way. We should seek to honor and glorify God with our life. We should make plans that are good 
as good stewards of what God has given us. Amen. We should definitely do that. What I do find interesting in the Bible, whenever this phrase man plans or the word plans is used, you know that overwhelmingly the time that it's used and it talks about man's plans, it's not a good thing. It's not like, oh, God, man does all these great stuff. No, overwhelmingly, it's, yeah, God created man righteous with Adam and Eve, and man then sought a whole bunch of other bad stuff after that, right? The heart is desperately wicked, and it plans evilness. So be careful. Just because you're a good planner doesn't necessarily mean that your plans are right. We always have to check our plans with the authority, the arbitrator, his word, right? We always have to be walking by the Spirit. And we have plenty of plans. But notice the second part. But the Lord directs his steps. So you can plan, you can move in a direction, but where your foot steps and how it steps Guess who's responsible for that? The Lord. In some ways, this passage is incredibly freeing. Because you can go, well, I plan my way. I'll make the best decision I can make. The best decision with what I have at my disposal. Uh, with, with, with all the stuff that's in front of me. I'm going to make the best decision. But you know the ultimate success of this and the the ultimate outcome of this is directly on the Lord. He's going to lead me and direct me wherever he wants me to go. It might not be where I planned to go. For Krista and I, uh, when we were looking at churches when we first left Bible college, this was one of the verses that I constantly quoted to myself and thinking and making plans. And when I was in Bible college and LaGrange, Wyoming, I had made these grand plans to go to Rapid City, South Dakota, to be a pastor in Rapid City, South Dakota. There's nothing wrong with that. They need a good Bible church in Rapid City, South Dakota. They still need a good Bible church there. It was great. It was a, it was a smart decision. It was close to my, it was close to my folks. Uh, we were close to Krista's folks. It was a good decision. Right? I, I, mean, I mean, when you would look at the plan, you would say there's nothing inherently sinful about this plan. And we therefore went out that way. And the Lord led us out here. <laughs> See, that's what happens. You can make a plan, and it be a good plan, a plan that seeks to honor and glorify God. And that's great, and that's what you should do. But realize God has the ultimate say of what happens in your life. Now, this is where people get a little tripped up. Because some of us don't like letting other people have control of where we end up. And sometimes the Lord brings things into our life that are incredibly painful. Incredibly hurtful. And so sometimes we get tripped up here. It's perplexing to us. We say, well, how could a loving God allow me to walk through this valley? But he does. And I can't necessarily give you the answer of why he does that. That's God. 
I don't even think God may ever give you the answer of why he's allowed you to walk through certain things. But I do know this. God is good. He's in control. And he gives you access to himself. And you can go to him and you can ask a lot of questions. But you should end in the place of saying, you are God, I am not. I'm trusting you that you know what's going on far better than I know what's going on. Great humility in thinking through this issue. There's a lot of freedom here, right? I can make plans and and I could worry about all the contingencies of those plans. And in some sense, you could see the futility of that because it really doesn't matter whether I plan or make contingencies for plans. It's ultimately the Lord's decisions. This does not erase the perplexity of planning and the perplexity of understanding human responsibility and God's sovereignty. These are, these are difficult subjects, right? The perplexity of my lifestyle and how when I live for the Lord, there's certain urges that I want to do, but the Lord says, don't do what you feel like you should do. Do what I'm asking you to do, and I'll work everything out. There's that perplexity of having little but being righteous. You would say, well, shouldn't it, shouldn't it be that I'm pursuing both? And he says, no, one's far superior than the other. It's better to be righteous. Go after that. This is perplexing to make plans, to make reasonable plans, biblical plans for us who, are, who want to please the Lord. And then saying, all right, Lord, you are in control. I'm going to trust you with this plan. And if you're leading me somewhere else, give me the grace to follow. Give me the faith to follow. That's perplexing. In fact, some people have even called the, the kingdom of Jesus, right? When thinking of Colossians 1, that we've been transferred into the kingdom of light. They've also referred to this as the upside down kingdom, right? Because there's a lot of times where there are things which seem the opposite of what we think should happen actually happening, right? So the weak are strong. Uh, it's better to be, it's better to be uh, repenting. It, it's, it's better to be humble than, than to exalt your own power. Right? What does Jesus say? The weak will become strong. The first shall become last. That's kind of backwards from how we understand things. And sometimes there's this tension that grows when we see these things that baffle us. I, I got to go back to it because it's what... It's been the lion's share of my week. Uh, I've been reading the book of Ecclesiastes for our class tonight, uh, a survey of the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, incredible book. Incredible book. I, I, would, I would suggest you go home and read it. In fact, you could tune me out right now and go read it. It's, it's fine. Um, but it starts off, well, let's just go there. Instead of me quoting it, I, I want to show you. Let's just go to Ecclesiastes 1.1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So this is Solomon. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And that's what he proves. Everything in life is vain. means nothing. In fact, the word here for vain kind of has the idea of like a mirage. Like it looks like something that has substance, but as you get close to it to try to grasp it, there's actually nothing there. It's like grasping at air. He uses another phrase. It's like chasing the wind, trying to catch the wind. 
in this book, he says numerous times, God does this so man doesn't understand what's going on. Numerous times he says, wisdom is better than folly, but you're still not going to understand. He leaves you with the sense that everything that's happening in this life means nothing. It's all meaningless. It's all vanity. He points you right to these complexities to which you go, well, then what am I supposed to do? If everything means nothing, then what do I do? And then he gives this conclusion, and I thought, this is a great way to help us through these complexities and these perplexities that we've talked about this morning. Let's go to the last verse of the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12. Chapter 12, notice in verse 13, he says this, the conclusion, when all has been heard, is. This is it. Solomon has distilled the entirety of life and human existence. He's distilled it all. He gives you the answer to life. He gives you the answer to thinking through all of these great complexities of life, of oppression, and of, of those, who are, those who are corrupt in government, and whether you should live by yourself or live with a family, or whether you should seek pleasure or, or walk around and constantly go into funerals, or, or whether it's better to die as a lion or live as a dog, right? All of these complexities of life. And what is his conclusion in verse 13? This is the conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to everybody. So this morning, as we think about these perplexing things, these baffling things, what, what should our response be? Fear God and keep his commandments. Take God serious, trust him, respect him, show reverence to him. Continually grow in understanding him. Take him serious. And then seek to keep his commandments. That's how you deal with these perplexities. That's how you think through these things. So when, when Proverbs says, man plans in his heart, but God directs his path, well, how am I supposed to then know what the future is? You don't. So what do you do? Fear God and keep his commandments and make sure that's part of your planning. And he'll, he'll take you all the way there. I'm sure I probably created a lot more questions than I created answers. And I'm sure I opened up a whole bunch of little mind worms that are going to eat its way through your mind throughout the week. And then the, solu- then the answer that I gave you is just fear God and keep the word. Some of you might find that uh, not as intellectually satisfying as you would hope. But trust me when I say there is no other answer. And trust me when I say that's just the way it is. And this is how God has so organized it that he would receive honor and glory by us being perplexed at all the things going on in life that we may distill all of life to is my relationship with the Lord right? Do I, have I placed my faith in Jesus Christ? Am I seeking to honor him and glorify him? And am I seeking to be obedient to his word? May the Lord give us both the will and the ability to do all that we heard today. Let's go ahead and let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your love, for your mercy, and for your grace. We ask that you would help us learn how to fear you and how to trust you and that we would continually seek to 
make our ways pleasing with you. And help us learn how to trust you in the midst of this and, and to learn to rely on you and that you have our best interest at heart regardless of what happens in our life and from our perspective. We thank you so much for Jesus and we thank you so much for the things that we do know, those concrete truths and promises that we have and we have because of your son Jesus. And we ask that you would teach us to build our life upon those and not not stray too far from those things. We thank you and love you in your son's name. Amen.